Welcome to What Makes a Garden. My name's Ginny Blom and I'm a landscape gardener and writer. I released my first book, The Thoughtful Gardener, in 2017. My second book, What Makes a Garden, will be published in October 2023. For over 20 years, I've been making gardens for a living. I've been lucky enough to work on projects all around the world, collaborating with fascinating people across the fields of design, architecture, conservation and more. While we will discuss the practical matters that go behind creating and looking after a green space, this series is about much more than that. We'll delve into what it is that inspires us to work with plants, what it is that connects us to the land, and the complex constellation of ideas, experiences, thoughts and senses that make a garden. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Maria Balshaw, director of the Tate Galleries. Maria became the first woman in the museum's history to lead the museum when she was appointed in 2017. Prior to that, she was director of the Whitworth and Manchester Art Gallery, where she led the Whitworth through a major redevelopment, winning the prestigious Art Fund Museum of the Year. As well as her love of art, Maria is a keen gardener. It's no coincidence that many great artists also keep gardens. In this episode, we discuss the relationship between art and gardening, humanity, and much more. Hi, Maria, and thank you for coming and or letting us come to you mm-hmm. to do the podcast. And what brought us together, I think, is that we're both gardeners, isn't it? Absolutely, and and thank you for coming to Tate Modern today. At the it's the beginning of a really busy autumn and with lots of artworks being installed at the moment. And therefore, for me, in terms of balance of my mind and thinking about gardens and gardening um, is always running alongside it because I'm a gardener, um, I think, as my other trade, if you like. Yeah. Um, I garden at the weekends and the holidays. Yes. And I find it's what keeps my creativity and my my stress levels balanced well that's what happened to me that's how I started because I always loved nature and gardening but I used to run a charity for people with schizophrenia and other fairly serious mental health problems and I found that I found almost by default that if I did an hour's gardening in the morning and by gardening I'm giving you the inverted commas it might just be outside wandering around sort of poking things mm. staring at things I do a lot of staring at things do you yeah, do that I do yes <laughs> and somehow that would carry me off into the day and it it would stay there like a thread of mm. of something I don't know is that what happens to you definitely mm. I might finish something on a Sunday evening or Monday morning I've just staked the sweet corn must sort the beans out next yeah um, um, and that next will carry me all the way through yeah the week or it's definitely time to um, lift and divide um, those cephalaria. Yeah. Um, and and so it's a nice hum. It is. Underneath it... all the other busyness, definitely. And um, and there's all the joy that comes of uh, seeing what has flowered or um, come to be harvested um, mm. when you're away for yeah. five days. But it's also the horror, the horror of so many courgettes or at the moment <laughs> so many yellow purple and green beans why did I plant all of them yes <laughs> imagine you know 100 years ago if we had vegetable gardens that we lived off mm. it's a massive amount of work isn't it is it? it's I mean, a, just all the a process job yeah it was red currants for me this year was it kilos and kilos of them 
Did you do it when you were a kid? Um, well, um, yes, and for a while, no. And But that's definitely why it's with me. Um, my dad was uh, a director of parks right. um, for oh. much of his uh, adult career. And he did a degree in horticulture uh, at Y College, oh, which was he? part of University of London, but yeah. it's actually very t- two miles from where I live now, yeah. which didn't do end up there deliberately, but definitely in the, How interesting. the kind of emotional drivers of life that you don't think through is yeah. definitely why I'm there. So he um, was trained in horticulture. He only ever used Latin names. Yeah. Um, and I know all of them yeah. without remembering when I learned them. And I had my own section on the allotment when I was a very small child and always grew things. And then, of course, as a teenager, I didn't even want to set foot in the garden. No. Did nothing. Yeah. Um, went to university in Liverpool. And two years later I remember somebody shouting up from Catherine Street which was that's lovely Georgian house is very yeah. rough street in those days and um, saying, is that weed you're growing and said, no it's it's coriander <laughs> I was <laughs> what I was growing herbs in window boxes because I just couldn't, yeah. I couldn't bear it you couldn't not yeah that there wasn't things that there weren't things growing around me how funny yeah my mum was a great gardener and and so was my great aunt who was six foot two and went to Girton. And so, and wow. she got banned from Hidcote actually for taking cuttings. She used to wear, <laughs> you know, those old men's overcoats, which didn't have pockets. They had those sort of slits so you could get your hand into your yeah. suit pocket. She used to wear one of those with this big Oxfam bag slung across her. Mm-hmm. And she took loads of cuttings at Hidcote and they stopped her. She was quite grand and, <laughs> and slung us out. But we used to go there every, every, every season we went. And I knew that garden intimately, and my mother gardened. And then she got we had a we had a good start in life, Maria, mm-hmm. but it went horribly wrong because my dad ran off with an opera singer. Oh my goodness! And so Mum got left with four kids, and she had to go from being a sort of nice um, middle class woman to feeding us all on no money. Mm. So she got an allotment. Yeah. And Peter the Pole was our neighbour on the allotment mm-hmm. who said to her once, you're a fine, strong woman, I think I'll marry you. And she said, <laughs> more to it than that, Peter. <laughs> but she just went, and I don't know how she did it. She went completely from being, you know, quite um, beautifully presented little French woman mm-hmm. into this kind of amazing producer of fruit and veg and fantastic rose. And we all had to go to the allotment after school, yeah. which was not always what you wanted to do. No. I did develop a lifelong love of raw kohlrabi. Yeah. <laughs> I think it gives and you I... much higher um, standards and expectations of vegetables. Yeah. But I you... was just amazed at her process mind, you know, the fact that she could map it. Because I'm useless at it, actually. I'm a flower person, mm-hmm. really. And uh, how she could map out all the production. Because it sounds like you've got a veg garden. I do. I have a... Um, yeah. You... About... Are you good at organising it all? You... Yes, and I've I've set it up so that I can manage it with my with my main career. Yeah. Um, so I've got um, twelve uh, um, well constructed vegetable beds so that I don't have to do so much weeding, and I use the kind of no dig approach. Yeah. And raised beds. Uh, yeah. How um, big are they? And they are. Um... <laughs> Get into the technicalities here. <laughs> <laughs> They're um, a meter wide yeah. and um, um, eight meters long. Um, and Ooh, you can get a lot out of yeah, that. Yeah, definitely. And there's twelve of them. Um, Crikey! Um, which is and my next door neighbour has a stables, and so they just get topped up with horse poo. Yeah. Twice a year. Yeah. And that's sort of and about all I need to do. I mean, 
Do you end up giving lots away? Because you must be producing absolutely massive amounts well, of that. There are six little houses beside us. Right. And so we, we're generous. Um, and I've got yeah. four adult children. So Right. Who, who um, um, perhaps don't they don't always love the vegetable deliveries, yeah. but quite often they do. <laughs> I've got to ask you how you have ended up in this extraordinarily massive, it just feels like a massive role to be, you know, the, the head of all the tapes. Mm-hmm. How did you do it? How did um, you get there? Well, um, I have worked in museums for half my career. Right. Um, so I have a slightly unusual journey to end up here. Um, but I think it, it in the end it makes sense. I... Um, trained as an academic right um, and and there was sort of there were gardens and art in my early life I um, grew up in Northampton and um, there was an art cinema close oh, to where yeah. I lived that almost no one went to um, where was that but um, it was called it was just because it was part of a, a, a sort of the Tesco shopping centre and my school um, and a sports centre. It was a 70s sort of yeah. modernist yeah. complex and they had an art cinema in there. How brilliant. Which was amazing, but so little appreciated at the yeah. time. Um, but the um, the person who took the tickets was a friend of my, was the mum of my friend. So we just all used to go because she'd let yeah. us in. And I saw masses of unbelievably good film. Um, including yeah. all of Derek Jarman's work. Yeah. And, of course, that was also on Channel 4. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so that sense of um, escaping from where I was and, yeah. and not wishing to stay in suburbia, I think the seed of that was planted in and through Derek Jarman's work. Yeah. So I went off to Liverpool to study English literature and cultural studies and, yeah. um, and kind of had visual culture and literature as my academic subject. Yeah. I also I didn't know people who worked in the art world or museums. There wasn't a contemporary art museum in Northampton, um, and my sort of Catholic working class background. It was we would read books, do well at school, yes, pass your exams and all yeah. of that. So I I went through university and did a masters and a PhD, yeah, sort of well, because good you should, um, yeah. and <laughs> it's a pathway. I didn't. Mm. I left school at 16 mm. and just had to muddle through. That's amazing. And did you go straight into museums at, at that point? No. No, um, I went um, into academia. So yeah, right. um, I I did, as I say, more than a decade as an academic. Um, and then um, in uh, after the 1997 election, when there mm. were a raft of um, social policy initiatives, mm. which included free museums mm. um, and... Um, Arts in schools, a programme called Creative Partnerships, which was created to take artists of all art forms into um, schools in some of the most economically challenged areas, including central Birmingham. Um, uh, I saw this job advertised because it it, and it was a research project. They wanted to find out what would happen if you gave teachers and children sort of the tools to be more creative and have artists thinking in schools rather than just do art projects. Um, so they advertised for a, a research director and I'd just finished a book and was thinking, what shall I do next? Um, and I'd got two children who would by then just in the primary school system in Birmingham. Yes. I thought, I would like schools to be much more like yeah. art schools or, yeah. um, or yeah. like museums. Um, yeah. And I'll just, 
I'll apply for this job. And yeah. I did one of those joyous interviews that you do when you think you don't stand a hope in hell of getting it. Yeah. And they gave and me the job. And you got it. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. Um, and that was the turning point in a yeah. real junction in my career. That's fascinating. I mean, it's funny because I had the same feeling about art in hospitals and um, art for because because I was working. This is later, you know. I've, I've staggered my way through drama and and realised mm. I'm never going to be a thespian. But it taught me space. I did set design and I learned a lot about space and how people move in space and what makes people comfortable or uncomfortable. Mm. And a lot of my guys that I was working, it was all guys that I worked with. Um, when they were very ill, I found how much we did art with them and working with art with people who are psychotic is fascinating. Mm. It wasn't art therapy. I wouldn't yeah. dignify it as art therapy. It was just art, you know, mm. and we were just painting every week. And I started to think these people, you know, I said to one, this Welsh guy who I work with, what would you, you know, if, if you hadn't have got the life you got done, what would what would you have done, you know? And his life had been in and out of psychiatric hospitals and living rough and all the rest of it. And he said, Bach, I'd be an artist. And I thought he really would yeah. because he painted and painted mm. and painted. Mm. And that love of colour and beauty and his, the paintings would change quite a bit depending on people's conditions. Mm. And that got me into thinking about the art in hospitals because I was having to go to hospitals all the time and see consultant psychiatrists and there's nothing in there. There's no stimulation. Yeah at all and there's no link to nature there's no link to beauty there's yeah. no link to anything that connects with another side of who we are it's yeah. very peculiar yeah and I, I remember a consultant psychiatrist yeah. saying to me at the Maudsley once you can't work with these people and I just thought that was like right mate yeah I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to and, and I'm going to show you I think we've yeah. um, unfortunately created conditions um that uh, have made what you describe even worse so when before I was at Tate, I was at the Whitworth Art Gallery mm. in Manchester and Manchester Art Gallery. And the Whitworth is opposite um, Greater Manchester's largest hospital. So you've oh, got right. all the disciplines that. there um, yeah. from uh, maternity care to mental health um, and paediatrics and, and all sorts. Mm. And in my first year there, um, we did some audience research about who was coming and what did they use the gallery for. And the Whitworth was blessed by a wonderful park around it. Yes. But in again, in the 80s, when there wasn't enough funding, they'd put a fence around it to stop people going into the park or stop the people from the park going into the gallery. So I was wanting to undo all of this. But one of the bits of um, uh, spontaneous anecdotal feedback we had was from um, a, um, a surgeon who um, worked on children with um, uh, life-threatening conditions. Yeah. And, and he said, oh, I go to the Whitworth and I sit in the South Gallery, which was the one that had windows that looked yeah. onto the park. And he said, I sit there whenever I've lost a child in surgery. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. he was using it yeah. for his own personal yeah. um, uh, restorative yeah. practice. And it is. There's something so liberating about being outside, you know, and and, and it's a very well, well discussed, really, but that, that feeling of perspective you know, yes. one's own perspective in the world and yeah. the importance mm. of it and the sun on your skin and the wind yeah, and the air. Absolutely. And, and um, things flapping around yeah. in the sky, you know. Yeah. And um, I love... <laughs> things beyond you. Yeah, you I know? love Sue Stuart Smith's book. Yes. Um, yeah. About the well-gardened yeah. mind. Yeah. Um, 
And, and again, so the, the hospital was so close to the Whitworth, uh, we developed lots of projects with them. Yeah. They included things like working with the maternity um, services when we showed Mary Kelly's work, who yeah. made such famous um, a piece of work about her, the birth of her own child. Yes. Called postpartum document. Um, and but the the extensions to the hospital, which had been built recently, yeah. were all done on um, um, public private finance contracts. And yeah. one of the things that you weren't they they did not even have permission to put art on the walls, yeah. even if they had yeah. had any good art to put yeah. on those walls. Yeah. And I, while I I was able to contrast that, which made it um, just terrible for the health professionals working yes. in there, such that they were always having to try and find workarounds. Comparing that with the Maggie Centre that was built in the last years yeah. that I was there, and um, through uh, the wonderful Sandy Nairn being on Maggie's board, um, and yes. with the University of Manchester's support, we came. The Whitworth came to an agreement with the yeah. centre that they would be able to hang works from the collection yeah. throughout their building. How mad that you have to go through, and it. with a beautiful garden. Yes. So it had all the things that we're talking about here yes. in order to be a space where people could. Think about being well as well as think about being well, ill. Well, that's I'm, what I'm artist in residence at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital now. I'm building gardens in the hospital mm -hmm. uh, for very sick people and for the doctors and for the staff. So all through COVID, you know, we had people sleeping in the garden, actually. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> and they'd just gravitate towards it mm -hmm. in yeah. the hospital just because it's it's not legislated. You don't know. It's not covered in signage. It's got leaves and light and the air's different you yeah know. absolutely and and you think why is this so difficult you know we tried to argue for the icu to be to use wood mm. because it's sonic qualities and it's yeah. texture and it, every piece of wood is different and unique and there's something to look at or relate to it's huge you know it's like no plastic is hygienic wood isn't you can mm. argue that it is mm. yes. but then you've got to make a massive argument and stick to it yeah. for months on yeah. end haven't you and push yes. it <laughs> yeah indeed but so, but I love that pushing um, and yeah. I think you asked earlier what brought me in the end to here um, and it was my experiences in Manchester and my realisation that if I um, pushed for things that were yes. for collective benefit yeah. we we could get a lot done yeah. and I love to see things change and be realised <laughs> So having come to the Whitworth um, to a, a, a lovely gallery that had had originally, when it yeah. was founded, a vision to be a gallery in the park and to be for the benefit of people of all social classes. Mm. And those were written in the kind of early committee yeah. minutes. Yeah, brilliant. And um, we were able to, uh, it took a long time to persuade the police to take the fence down, but they mm. did in the mm. end. And then we got Heritage Lottery Fund support and lots and lots of other funders, um, and especially the university, supporting the idea of extending the gallery more into mm. the park and creating an art garden mm. that um, uh, was enclosed by the two wings, two kind of arms, really, of the um, the new building, but that it was open to the park mm. and that it should not feel like it had a threshold. And yeah. the wonderful designer Sarah Price yeah, made the garden great. there yeah. with the support of um, Jo Malone, who yeah. helped us create it as a, um, a therapeutic garden. Yeah. And then our friends in the hospital um, used it for social prescribing. Yes. And so there was a That's right. um, That's what mental health and well-being That's program right. there. And yeah. the garden's been there 
eight, nearly nine years yeah. now. And my daughter's been at art school in Manchester, so I get to go back very regularly. How lovely. And it looks amazing. Amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's so um yeah. and the big fight that we had was to not have um anti um sleeping metal studs on the beautiful stone seats yeah. that are all the way around um the garden and are sheltered yeah. by the building itself. Yeah. Yeah. And the 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 public safety guidance was that you had to repel people. Exactly. This um, is the this and is the, rather than make them feel welcome so there that there won't the be any bad behaviour. There lies the madness because mm. people don't vandalise gardens. Mm. People they really don't. You know, I had this massive fight on a public project in in uh, Glasgow, and they're saying, well, it's all rough sleepers and drinkers, and and you know we've got to mm. fence everything off and push yeah. everybody out. And I said, well, why don't we just look at what people are doing? actually you know mm. and and if you actually look at what they're doing they're sitting in a little round group around a little bonfire drinking and chatting you mm. know well just because you think they're scruffy weeks and they shouldn't be there doing it is 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 irrelevant yeah. and if we actually made somewhere where that can happen and you make a burn zone so they can burn something without you know they haven't burnt the city down yet yeah you know Absolutely. so why don't we just go with it it's like trying to take fox tracks out of a garden you know you can't because they're going to keep doing the same i designed my garden in london completely around the foxes because <laughs> you can't change their habits yeah, just absolutely. like you can't change our habits yeah. very easily mm. and i think that sort of is fascinating that, that you're you know it, it gets me all revved up actually because yeah, absolutely and it's similar a, impulses yeah and it's also about what yeah. humans need um yeah. there was another wonderful project led by the university of manchester's archaeology community archaeology team yeah. when we were doing the building work you know you're obliged to look at the history of your place and be very careful around any archaeological remains and we knew that where the art garden was going had been a kind of coaching yard and yes. um, and so the community archaeology team did a piece of public archaeology near to our building and then further out in the park and they discovered the, the places where men used to sit yeah uh, have always sat, sat in yeah the, in the park um but particularly um after the first world war when yeah. there were lots of returning yeah. veterans who were very traumatized yeah. and they found um uh, dice and um, and jacks and um cans and yeah. the the so games and um and drinking and talking that would have happened yeah. in the little shelters yeah and we ended up developing a whole series of projects around the idea of the shed yeah in the How park brilliant. and and um and soliciting men to come and sit in the come chair and sit in it. because yeah. they were otherwise and they were otherwise sitting in the weather spoons at the other side of the park yeah um and we took a project to there um because we knew they weren't coming to the gallery and, and said kind of kind of why are you sitting here so well because it opens at nine o'clock in the morning yes. um and we talk to people yeah and we're not we're allowed to talk as men yeah. in the pub but we wouldn't be allowed to talk as men in the gallery and in that, the gallery oh, we, we, yeah. we, we challenged yeah, okay. ourselves to try and change yeah. that well it's interesting because leamington where i'm from was built by a philanthropic georgian man mm -hmm. of of means mm. and he bestowed the land of of the town for something like two thousand years there's some kind of covenant on it and he wow. built it's got the river lem running through it but he built a sequence of parks all the way 
along the Lem as it runs through the town. So there's a, a sort of, a, at either end there are water meadows and then they get posher as you go into the middle of town. Mm. And the posh one, which was opposite the art cinema, was one of my sort of seminal experiences because I used to bunk off there and mm. go and kind of mooch around as you do. And Leamington's got a big Sikh community, so there'd be these Sikh guys smoking beadies sitting mm. in a Georgian pavilion in <laughs> sky blue, you know, uh, robes and, and turbans looking absolutely amazing in this mm. Georgian they were perfect yeah. it was just like I've got all these sort of vignettes and then there was the guy like your dad probably who ran all the glass houses mm. and did all the, the uh, ornamental clock the floral clock yeah. did you have, did you grow up around a floral clock oh so I mean Abington the... Park in um, uh, Northampton uh, nearly Very always had a floral clock yeah Weren't they amazing with all the little semper vivens and everything? And then we had, there was a big aviary, and and then there was a massive holly tree which all the kids could get under. So mm. all the way through the park, there'd be all these different little pockets of activity. Mm. And there's something about moving amongst other people. Um, I sing with with some friends, and um, we call it we call it transcendental holism. It's what mm. you get instead of going to church. It's mm. it's where can you be with other people completely being yourself completely comfortable with them yeah and why would something bad happen in a place like that it's yeah. not going to is it no it's not it's well, not going to you're also describing the museum yeah um uh i've just been i'm finishing a book about the the past and future of museums and uh one of the working titles it might be the title is um gathering of strangers which is also the name of an artwork by Nathan Coley, which now sits above nice. the Whitworths Art Garden, um, because it was a, the motto for the the whole project that we were running. Because the wonderful thing about museums is that you um, you can come on your own, yeah. um, and nobody thinks that's weird. You can yeah. come in a large group; that's yeah. fine too. Yeah. Um, you can come for a class, or you can come because uh, it's raining and you want to kind of. Um, uh, get out of the wet for 20 minutes and you're supposed to wander around mm. comfortably yeah uh, next to other people that you don't know and yeah. you don't have to think the same way as them no you can start wherever you i mean we design exhibitions to this is room one and this is room nine but people always come in the wrong end yeah and that's fine because yeah. it's not the law that you have to look in that order well it's like a stream isn't it with everyone sort of eddying around yeah. in their own way and, and to me um yeah. that's that's the um the huge liberation mm. of a museum mm. um, that many different views can be present at any one time and um, you can be completely alone but in yeah. the context of other people so and um, we found after the pandemic that um, when people returned they were very emotional about yeah, being in the museum interesting. and what I think we were witnessing was their recognition that they had missed that yeah. um, social presence yeah and so they were looking at artworks and often weeping because i come from this sort of you know i'm, I'm from a um, vocational background i suppose and i still think like that even though i'm probably known for making big gardens for rich people my brain isn't in that place really mm -hmm. that's what i do because i like to build what i what i think of but it's much more about what we're building collectively you know to make our lives better mm. and the more people like us do it the nicer world we're going to end up living in yeah. and the more transformational it is really mm. you know and I, I do think we've gone down a bit of a weird it's so nice to hear you fighting 
<laughs> fighting the studs, mm. you know, these but little things that, and, that have come from hugely. these weird policies, mm. weird sort of paranoid mm. policies of, of what people are. Yeah, and, and what safety might be. What and, is it, yeah. 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 And I think um, uh, Herzog and Demuren and, and Nick Sirota in transforming this building into Tate Modern um, made um, a few very profound um, decisive moves and the most important of those was to um, allow the turbine hall to kind of continue to, to, to be, be open. to be yeah. open and um, Herzog and Demurin described it always as a covered street yeah they always meant yeah. it to be permeable to yeah. the outside which is a very unusual thing yeah. for museums generally yeah. you know you have a hard door yeah um, but that slope no, I've seen yeah. ch ch everybody's children run down it. You know, when it's carpeted, they do rolls all the way down the slope. Yeah. Um, it, I remember it was controversial when it opened, mm. wasn't it? People going, "Ooh, what a waste yeah. of space!" and you know, and all <laughs> yeah. that sort of thing, wasn't yeah. it? And I was working, I was doing a little project, private project with Rachel Whiteread when mm -hmm. she got asked to yes. do her thing here, mm. which was which... a wonderful turbine hole. I am going to tell you, Mike, because when we're on stud policy for a minute, I am going to tell you my Marina Abramovich anecdote yeah. now. Because before she moved to New York, I, I was working in Scotland up in the Highlands mm. and uh, I was presented with this bit of paper. My client had got a collection of art mm -hmm. to place outside mm. and it was my first experience of placing things outside. And actually, we actually sold lots of it because... I find it quite difficult to place a lot of things outside. But I had this sketch of a marina sculpture. And I said, what am I supposed to do with this? And it'll build it. And I said, but it's a <laughs> sketch. What do I do now? Because I hadn't encountered working with artists before. And I said, oh, you just, you know, just you decide how you want to build it. And it was so funny because we had a, it was a big building project. We were building a house. So we had quantity surveyors and project managers mm -hmm. and all the rest of it. And... That's one side of this. And then I rang her gallery, who I can't remember his name now, an Irish guy. And he said, oh, Marina wants to come and meet you. So she came mm -hmm. over with her broken leg and we lived together for a week. And she said, take me up the hill. And I said, Marina, you've got a broken leg. You can't get up. I can, I can, I can. Like, no, nothing will stop yes. her. So we got to the top of this hill. She said, this is magnificent. You know, we can put this piece of work up here. There's this huge thing called... Hunter, the Hunter chair, which is like a giant chair, mm. like 10 metres tall, covered in antlers. So mm. we had to um, find all the antlers. And I said, how do I build it? Still nobody's telling me. And it ended up getting caught up with, um, does it need planning permission? The only way we can get it up there is with a Chinook. The only way we can get a Chinook <laughs> is by speaking to the army and sit, and then they can only lend it to us on days when they don't have to go out over the North Sea doing something else. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, this thing's become a building. You know, it's suddenly <laughs> gone from being an artwork with this extraordinarily kind of fluid thinking and sort of a spirit mm -hmm. in it to being this other thing. Yeah. It's really weird. Do you encounter what I'm talking about? All the time. Do you? Um, so and when does art part, become a building? Yeah, big, well, <laughs> quite often. And I've worked with Marina on a number of occasions. Yeah. And I know she's um, not one to let the need for planning permission. Get in or the way. Even, or even acquiring a helicopter to get in the way. No. Um, of what she can see in her mind's eye. Yeah. Um, but she, she, it's not a t 
tangible build at no. that either. So I was saying, what metal do we use? What this, you know? No. Mm. So I suddenly had to go off into the technical. Yeah. And some artists are absolutely obsessed with the technical, and yeah, others are they? Not, yeah, at not at all. They're interested in the. The, the concept of it all. I did make it, but not there. It's somewhere <laughs> it sounds, very different. <laughs> she's got an amazing show just opened last night at the Royal Academy. Uh, is um, it? So with lots of these, you look at things that she has done down the decades and say, how did she, how did she think to do that? How did she, how did she yeah. think that washing uh, an incredibly large and disgusting looking pile of um, bones, um, meat bones, um, would be the artwork, and it's one of the most phenomenal artworks that she ever made in, she is in Venice. Um, and it's it's horrible and visceral and and sculptural and repetitive and therefore meditative. Yes, um, I loved her crystal shoes. Actually, mm -hmm. I really like those. Yeah. But I was fascinated by that because this whole thing of, of I was trying really hard to kind of walk this line between, without ever having done it before, between you know the the spirit of the artwork and and the practicality the and the, and the real world stuff yeah and the helicopter makes me laugh and makes me think of the army and the, so the other um Cornelia Parker is another artist who yeah. often requires almost um impossible things to happen yeah um and and that's sort of the the essence of the work so her most famous piece that's in Tate's collection is called Cold Dark Matter yeah and it's an exploded shed to go back oh, to the yes, shed yes, thing. Oh, yes, I know. Yeah. Um, and um, people adore it because yeah. it is like a um, a Roadrunner Looney Tunes explosion, explosion. moment with yeah. a single light bulb lighting all these fragments. But it was made by her um, wanting to blow something up, <laughs> wanting to blow <laughs> up the contents feeling. of a shed. <laughs> so the, the logistics of that particular one involved, mm. um, first of all... Um, identifying the shed and the person who had the shed and all their things in it so yeah. and moving said shed to a field large enough to hold an explosion <laughs> and then collaborating with the territorial army to stage the explosion how brilliant and um, commandeering a large number of volunteers to then collect up all the pieces in an orderly fashion so that Cornelia could then supervise the reassembling of this as the artwork as we know it. Um, all of which is like massively complex in terms of work. Um, and when she was talking about it uh, with a public audience once, somebody asked, um, how did you know it was going to work? Or oh, did you have yeah. to do it many times? And she said, well, no, it wouldn't have been the work. It should... I had to do all of this preparation yes. and, and try and address all of the logistical complexities. She said, and then just see. blow it up. Yeah. See what <laughs> You can't happens. do it twice. It's, yes. It's inauthentic. Yes. Um, and the person was like, that's really... that." And you said, that must have been really scary. And, and Cornelia went, yes. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but that thing of chance, you know, and, mm. and um, experimentation, isn't that the best thing in life, you know, that just you throw yourself open to it yeah. and see what happens? Mm. Well, the simplest yeah. art is a mark on a... Yeah, out on a piece of paper or a wall, and that's precarious yes, and full of risk. It is because what if it's not the right mark? Yeah, and most people Gone even, to, it goes can't in the wrong get direction. there. Can they? You can't even get. Yeah, well, I quite like a life full of risk, actually. I'm going to ask you about Prospect Cottage because I I had a a personal um, relationship 
to it all that there's a there's a cusp with creative things where they change from being a personal to a public and I think that happens a little bit. I've mm. been thinking about it while you're explaining Cornelia's shed because that very personal process or Marina's mad chair, you know, that process does shift, doesn't it? And when something becomes public, it's become something else in a way. So I'm quite fascinated by your what you've done with Prospect Cottage. Mm. And there's a, a collaboration around yeah. Prospect Cottage now. Yeah. Um, and it's held in trust for the public. Yeah. Um, uh, but not by a single body. Um, uh, so a group called Creative uh, Folkestone, who support the uh, and run the Folkestone Triennial, which creates art outside rather than mm. placing art in public spaces, mm. to go back to your problem of putting art outside from earlier um they they are the um the the kind of caretakers of yeah. prospect cottage um and um working with tate and with the art fund um and a lovely group of artists and and friends of derek, derek yeah um uh, who are um a, a, a trust we collectively raised the funds to uh, keep prospect cottage and its garden yeah um, as a space that not just that the public could keep coming to see, but yes. that artists could use, and that was really very oh, that's important. That's really interesting. I didn't yeah. know that. Um, and and it was part because uh, Derek lived there and made work there, yeah. so it, it's a studio. Um, yeah. He created a garden, which um, yeah. I think many would argue, and I would certainly argue, is um, one of his greatest artworks. I would say so. I was yeah. going to ask you how you how you look after it because mm. curating a living thing is interesting yeah. isn't it and um, the garden is looked after by uh, um, a gardener called uh, Johnny Bruce who knew Derek mm. and had looked after the garden intermittently for um, quite a long time Fergus Garrett who's at yeah, no, Great Dixter also sits yeah. on the board yeah. and helps advise and Johnny's worked with a group of um, students and interested gardeners who are interested in the spirit of the garden. Yeah, because that's it, really, isn't yeah. it? And, yeah, um, and it was, and and we have a lot of information about yeah. how it should be. Yeah, um, in terms of that spirit, because that's what Derek writes about in his diaries. Yes. So you've got, if you like, the um, the method. Um, that he adopted, yes, and it was always evolving, and yeah. because of all the things that I love about gardening, that things die and you don't mourn them because oh well, it died. I'll plant something else. Exactly, and, it's an opportunity. Yes. Um, and yeah. oh god, they've self seeded too much, and these yeah, have all got to be it. pulled out. Yeah. So there was a sort of a method and an evolution documented, yes. um, which uh, the current garden custodians um, uh, still adopt yeah. but they're not there were things that failed so Derek had tried in the last couple of years of his life to establish some raised beds yeah. for vegetables and it just didn't have didn't time work. and energy yeah. didn't work yeah they're having another go at that yeah um, we've got actually I think better understanding now of how to make the right kind of sandy gritty yeah Growing medium, so well, it's that a they... desert, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. So gardening that's... in the desert. Yeah, it's been looked <laughs> after very lightly, and um, nearly everybody that's involved um, has some um, personal, professional engagement with Derek's yeah. practice. Yeah, um, and we all agreed, and 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 a few people like um, 
I don't know, Tilda Swinton and yeah. um, um, Tacita Dean knew yeah. Derek really quite well. Um, yeah. So we knew, we know some things about him, um, such as he really didn't like National Trust places. Um, no. And, <laughs> um, and he didn't like things to be fixed and yeah. uh, or kept in aspect. That would yeah. have... so. We've had this my, thing in our mind, I think, of um, not wishing Derek to be spinning in his grave yeah. for the things that we're taking forward. But what he most often did um, at Prospect was bring people together, yeah. often to make work. Yeah. Um, so whilst there's long been a real fascination with the black house, yes. with its yellow um, um, uh, windows on the Ness, um, so we knew there was public interest in coming yes. to see it. Uh, we didn't want that. We didn't want it to be a national trust type yeah. house. Not yeah. that there's anything wrong with the national trust. Um, so for a good part of the year, the um, the house is used by artists to live in and make, yeah. make work. Yeah, how interesting. I didn't know that. I want to live in a world where you can have these very strong responses to things and have somewhere to go. You know, mm-hmm. as you're saying, people coming here weeping. I can yeah. understand it because mm-hmm. you need to go somewhere where you can experience the big things in life. Yes. Um, comfortably with definitely. art and nature. Yeah. And um, Dungeness is so um, bleak and so beautiful mm. in one and the same mm. sort of movement. Um, mm. And you know, the John Donne poem on on the side of the house yeah. and oh. the way the garden is laid out, it, may, it meant that people have I've always come. I've forgotten it, you know, Maria. I've mm. forgotten it, really. Mm. It's, yeah. It's um, just like a literally like a... A stuck image in my head. I'll mm. have to go back. Yeah, people who were invited to um, to go to Prospect Cottage uh, by Derek were um, the, were the young, mm. um, often and the old. Mm. But if mm. um, if he met somebody um, young, new and interesting, they'd be, they'd be invited down. Yeah, um, and and of course he was making his own work with lots of different yeah. collaborators. Um, yes, and that generosity. Young. I'd love to see more yeah. of that going on. Wouldn't yeah. you? Um, I mean, he was wildly generous absolutely with and everything the residences yeah. that are happening there now that the call for um yeah. uh, the, the next group of artists is out now um, and it's and again we thought hard about that um and it's every discipline because you know derek worked in pop made pop videos yeah. as well as yeah, high yeah. art films he yeah. was not um he wasn't he was multidisciplinary <laughs> in yep. all of his thinking and um, very anti-elitist um yeah. But um, the the call for artists really set, invites um, the very young people at the beginning mm. of their career, but also says, or you might be um, a world-renowned artist who needs a moment to retreat. To retreat, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. and and I I hope with that um, that the cottage um, will keep having that generative, yeah. creative power. Yeah. I've got one last thing to ask you, mm-hmm. which is about women artists. I, I, my husband and I collect art by, um, um, by sort of relatively unknown artists of a certain period, usually in this country. And what we realised recently, sort of after the war to before pop art is what we're mm-hmm. interested in. Yeah. And we've realised that quite a lot of the art that we've got is art by women, mm-hmm. and we didn't know that. So we were collecting Eileen Agar and... Which was lucky. Yeah. We didn't well really done. know what we were doing, yes. and then we lent it to Whitechapel recently, and everything. But another one is this amazing artist called Rosalie Demerick, and she grew up mm-hmm. with um, 
Francis Bacon was a childhood mm-hmm. friend of hers. Yeah. And I was sort of raving on the other day because her work is absolutely astonishing. I mean, quite scary. I asked my niece mm-hmm. to describe what was going on in a picture, and she's nine, and she said, you know what, I'd rather not. <laughs> <laughs> and I was mentioning mm-hmm. her work, and some somebody who knew her well said, well, if she'd been a bit less difficult, she might have been more popular. Mm. And I remember oh, yeah, thinking... Francis Bacon was super easy, wasn't he? Wasn't he easy? And I remember <laughs> thinking, you know, the 1950s was still a really difficult time to yeah. be, you know... Barbara Hepworth just blasted through it, mm. but not many yeah. did, did and, they? And truthfully, I think, yeah. um, I mean, Barbara was extraordinarily determined. Yes. But she also made a very deliberate um, decision that she would just find a way of accommodating her children and her domestic life alongside her art. Her art. Um, which is, was But she possible. had a set to her jaw, which she made, did. didn't she? Yeah. Which made you think that she was yeah. going to do it. And she'd get, and, you know, some of the most brilliant... Um, uh, documentary photographs we have are of her kind of getting lots of um, fishermen and sailors to help uh, uh, rig a kind of rope crane to swing a work into her second studio, the Palais de Danse. It's it's the steepest street in St Ives and you just think, wow, Wow. we would (laughs) never be allowed that with health and safety rules these days. But she just got everyone to help. Yeah, so... Mm. It was a little anecdote, but yeah. it's 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 tough going. Yeah, but what it? I love is the way you described your own collecting practice, which is that we collected work in this period that we know, and and then it's happened that it's by um, mostly it's, by women. It's happened that it's mostly by women. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, uh, and that's how it should be, yeah. and how it often hasn't been. Yeah, because um, the you look at the name first. Yeah, and um, and if you're a woman making art, then until very recently it was much more difficult to get to market, to be collected, yeah. to maintain yeah. your career. I mean, um, and she was really poor. I mean, she was from a really fascinating background, but she was very hard up. You know, li- yeah. living with paying guests and mm. ra- raising yeah. a child, and you know, painting on hardboard with hardly any paint. You know mm. the, the dedication of that particular yeah. woman you just think wow mm. and there has to her really that and um and that history that sort of difficulty is the case for as i said for women artists all over the world mm. um until very very recently mm. and because i always like to kind of um uh move through the world optimistically yeah uh I I took my daughter who's just finished art school to the Venice Biennale last year um, so she was 22 and I remembered going to the Biennale when I was 22 yeah. and Lily saw a Biennale where um, almost all the work um, was by women or non-binary artists yes. and I saw, I had seen a Biennale where I don't remember seeing a single, a single woman, woman not a single woman no it has changed yeah and yeah Amazing. And yeah. and again, in a very disciplined way, um, Cecilia, who made that Biennale, did not say, I have made the Biennale yeah. of Women Artists. She said, I have made a Biennale um, of the the, the most artist. extraordinary yeah. art yeah. Um, that represents Which the world. Which is how it should be, it shouldn't it? Yes. We should be able to walk through the world without presenting our gender to the fore. Indeed. <laughs> Thank you ever so much. 
for today. It's been great. Well, thank you, because um, yeah. I was really looking forward to speaking to you, because I know some of your garden, I know the garden um, you made in Braemar at the Five Oh, farms. yes. Oh, yeah, which mm. I'm remaking, because mm. we just had to put new drains in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, the wonderful thing about gardens, I always think, is that you're making something extraordinarily beautiful and you're also dealing with the drains you're all also the time. yes it's all modern drains yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> so thank, thank you so you. much thank you thank you for joining me on this episode of what makes a garden if you enjoyed this episode please like it leave a review and share with your friends to find out more you can head to my website ginnyblom.com or find me on instagram at ginny.blom the book, What Makes a Garden, will be published by Quarto and available to buy online from all good bookshops from the 19th of October 2023. This podcast was produced by Danielle Radoichin at In Talks With, sound by Warren Borg at Wargi Productions, original music commissioned by Ginny Blom, composed by Peter John Vitesse and produced by Mark Fox at Re-Record. <laughs>